science. Listening to Love and Science on uh, BCFM 93.2 or bcfmradio.com. And it's always great uh, to have your company uh, on the show on Monday afternoons. And of course, I'm joined as usual uh, by Andrew Glester. Hello, Andrew Glester. Hello, Malcolm. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Yes, um, uh, thanks, uh, of course, to Pat for. Um, uh, the show just before hours and uh, all that cultural stuff going on in Bristol. It's been a fantastic it weekend. Was. There was a little bit of our show featured on that show. A little bit of our show too, which makes it even better yes. than it would be, of yes. course. Well, the best not, of BCFM just got better. Yeah, not that we're immodest or anything <laughs> like that. Well, I'm not, obviously. But, uh, there we go. Have you been uh, enjoying a weekend of sports? I, uh, well, I've been busy. Have you? Oh, yes, I've been busy. Okay. Uh, yes, it's uh, taken me out of the city. Okay. Uh, and uh, but next week I'm hoping to spend a little bit of time. Won't be much, I'm afraid, but a little bit of time looking at the tennis. Yeah. And of course we'll see how things go with the football. Yeah. Uh, fingers crossed. Because it's, it's, it's all got be, very very excited. Uh, it's it? going to be the Wimbledon final at the same <clears throat> time as the World Cup final. So I, very strange. I imagine some people at Wimbledon are kind of hoping that Croatia win on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does put them in a difficult position, it doesn't nice, it? Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Split the audience like that. And I, I'm, it's noticeable actually. People have gone a bit crazy around. But I, 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 I noticed over the weekend. Yeah. I mean, in the nicest possible way, yeah, yeah. but you can really see the hijinks uh, yeah. spirit. Do you know what, I just while we're here, I was talking to somebody over the weekend about um, football who was a professor. I, don't, I can't see how we could get him on the show, but it's fascinating. He's a professor who studies history and football's role in history. And he's convinced that um, if you... If Russia had met... The U- uh, England, rather. If Russia had met England in the World Cup semi-final on Wednesday instead of Croatia, then it could have made a real difference in the political dialogue between our countries. <laughs> and you, I know it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But he's a professor <laughs> of these things, so I kind of think maybe he knows what he's talking about. I mean, I know we've had enough of experts, but I haven't. And uh, but I was, We certainly it, haven't on this show. No, it reminded me of, um, you know, the Hungarian Revolution is... It, it, historians look at that and say that the Hungary winning the World Cup was a, played a large part in that because it brought people out into the streets. They started having conversations and finding that they were all unhappy with the way things were, and that was a large uh, had a large say in yeah, right. in, in the movement of kind that of thing. Catal- catalyst effect. Yeah. Well, you know, social science. Yeah, we can do that on the okay, show. Let's that'll, get him in. That'll I'll tell do you what, it. If England win the World Cup, we'll get him in. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's a deal. Okay, it's a deal. Um, just uh, going back to uh, we were talking about uh, BCFM, talking about uh, Pat's show just before hours and the best of um, best of BCFM. Just something I want to tell you about is that the uh, One Love Reggae and Scar Festival uh, is on August thirty first to the second of September, twenty eighteen, and uh, there are all kinds of exciting things: uh, Alba Rosie and Schengen Clan, Johnny Osborne, Johnny Clark, over a hundred other acts across uh, a four-night camping festival. It's down in Glastonbury, Jilcombe Farm uh, near Glastonbury, uh, Bruton, Somerset. Get your tickets at 
onelovefestival.co.uk. Sounds good. There you are. There's the thing. So I must say that before um, I forget, because that's something I need or meant to say during during the show. Getting back to the science now. Yeah. I don't know if we could do the science of a of a festival of a reggae and ska festival i bet we could find a way of doing it um but uh, in the news stories that we're looking at this week um there's a, a a strange well it might strike uh people as a bit strange there's a thing called the marshmallow test I don't know oh, if you've yes. heard the marshmallow test. Is that something to do with campfires? It isn't oh, okay. anything to do with campfires, okay. strangely and oddly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I see where you're going there. No, apparently, uh, uh, one of the ways that uh, you can look at um, the development of children, it turns out, is you do something which seems rather cruel. <laughs> is that It doesn't have to be a marshmallow. I mean, especially yeah. if children don't like marshmallows, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Uh, but, say, sweets or something like that. Something that a child might like. And you say, in a, in a room, uh, some friendly researcher says to a child, now, um, I'm going away uh, for a, 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 about uh, three minutes or so, and um, I'm going to put... Uh, there are some sweets here. Now, um, please don't touch the sweets. If you do, then I won't give you a bag of sweets when I come back in. Uh, so it's very important that you don't touch the sweets, okay? So you got the idea. The idea is, is about delayed gratification, and uh, it's a way that you can you can study how this works in children. Of course, as children uh, get older, generally, they... They then learn delayed gratification, which is okay if I wait just for a moment, I don't have this thing this very moment, but I put it off, uh, then they recognise that the reward that they will get will be greater. Well, one of the weird things that's happened in a, in a study, and uh, I have um, uh, taken this from uh, Science News, is that uh, what we'll call it the marshmallow test, just for the sake of argument, is that children today, and this is a... a, a a study done in the United States, um, children today tend to wait much longer to get an extra treat in this famed marshmallow test than they did in the 1960s or even in the 1980s. Um, it turns out that the willingness to delay gratification has bloomed among U.S. preschoolers who come from predominantly white middle-class families. Now, the point is they haven't done the studies with any other uh, groups of people. And a psychologist, Stephanie Carlson from uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, um, has done this study, and she's found that youngsters aged between three to five in the 2000s have waited an average of two minutes longer during the, quote, marshmallow test than children in the 1960s, and an average of a minute longer than the children did in the 1980s. So it's consistently getting longer. It's consistently getting longer. The question is, why? Yeah. Because what, what's weird, or it strikes me as weird about it, and I think probably the researchers themselves, is that as we become technically uh, more um, rich, enriched, our cultures have become more technically... Uh, you, you know, you can you can sort of do whatever you want. If you if you want to pause television, you want to watch a television program now, you can do it. All that stuff. Um, if you want to watch a film now on your iPhone, you can download it now, listen to music and so on. That actually you would expect people, uh, and of course especially children, to lose the capacity for delayed 
gratification because that is as if that muscle is not being used. Yeah. But it's going up. Although these are preschool children, aren't they? So I expect that they're not as um, exposed to that side of culture. I mean, they, I know there's a link um, in studies between the use of technology, digital technologies, and uh, children's ability to pay attention, think abstractly, plan and prioritise things for preschool children. So when they're using preschool um, digital technologies, then they, it does improve those things. And maybe those specifically designed things for preschool children are not designed in the same way as the games are for, for teenagers. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of... Um, the games that we play on our phones and 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 increasingly PlayStation 4 and Xbox game, Xbox games seem to be that you can't get further without um they're designed aren't they to, to to give constant rewards to keep you hooked in to to the gaming and maybe that these preschool ones aren't designed like that I don't know I'm just presupposing yeah. that well I think I think as with a lot of these studies and we're fond of saying this on 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 the show you really have to check what's going on yeah and um, it's not always clear what's going on and 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 the reasons for it it may even be and, and there's some speculation in the, in the article that we we, we were reading um, that that Actually, this marshmallow quotes marshmallow test doesn't work anymore because we're we're thinking differently and we're experiencing the world differently. Yeah, I guess it, it used to be that there seemed to be a correlation in, in the sixties data. There seemed to be a correlation between the children who could wait longer and and their ability to um, function better as a as a student in their teenage years whereas that that correlation isn't there anymore no and that but that might be simply because i think it's uh, 30% of the people who the children who did the test in the 60s managed to wait the whole amount of time yeah. that went up to 40% in the 80s yeah. it's now 60% of the yeah. children can wait the whole time yeah. and maybe that that means that the statistics aren't now you know kind of if you understand the way statistics work that because so many of the children are waiting the whole time then that statistical significance following on doesn't really make sense anymore yes 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 i do yeah. um i mean one, one of the interesting things about about this is we know uh, from the past anyway that children young children say you know three or four years old who could wait flourished better in life yes that was one of the things. In, yeah. in other words, this ability to delay gratification yeah. seems to be a very powerful um, indicator that you can manage life better. Yes. Yeah. Although it's apparently there's not, as I say, it's not showing in the in the more recent studies that that is yeah. still the, the case. Yeah. It's funny you should say you can watch a, a, a film on your phone because tonight I'm going to watch um, what's it called, The Darkest Hour. You know, oh, yeah. you have not watched that for a while. I've not watched it at all. I got what, which, oh, that's, that's the, the, the Churchill thing. One, yeah, 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 very good. Yeah, very, very Is good. I, well, he really deserved the um, uh, Oscar. Was it an Oscar he got for it? Yeah. I can't. I wish I was better up on these things. We certainly got. Uh, I think it was an Oscar yeah. uh, nomination for best actor. For yeah, that. I think he did. Yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking I could watch it on my phone right now, but I'm doing a radio show. So it's what I'm best gonna, not. What I'm going to do later, right, is hook up my projector in my shed. Get my 3D, you know, what's it, what, 5.1 surround sound in. Sit in my shed and watch it for a delayed uh, react. You know, I'm going to delay my 
gratification by waiting to sit in my shed when the sun's gone down and watch that film later in preparation slightly for the World Cup final on a World Cup semi-final on Wednesday night. Ah, you link the two, do you? Um, a little bit. You know, the, the, the darkest moments of the war <laughs> and the, the football match. The, well, well no, the penalty shootouts. people will be you with know. you there. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, um, the, the, the next story we've got is a bit of, bit of a sad one, actually, um, because um, it's, we have to do these from, from, from time to time. Um, one, of the, one of the stories that's going around, and uh, Helen Briggs wrote about this, you'll see it on the uh, BBC uh, Science News website, um, is all about uh, a, a toad who's, who's generally known as the Lord of the Rings toad. And uh, the, 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 the reason for that is uh, he's named after Gollum, the fantasy novel uh, Lord of the Rings character. And um, he's joined the latest list of animals deemed at risk of extinction. Um, he lives in uh, Malaysia and a Malaysian mountain. It turns out there's only one Malaysian mountain, as far as we know, for this creature. And um, this toad got his name from Gollum, who's also named, if I got this right, Smeagol. Smeagol, I think. Smeagol. Oh, Smeagol. Smeagol. Oh, that's right. And I've heard of Smeagol. Yeah. I was trying to think how to pronounce this. Right. Malcolm, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, and I know this is science news, but there's some breaking news which we just probably should cover, that Boris Johnson has resigned as the Foreign Secretary. Oh, Wow. I don't know how to respond to that in, no. a, in a professional way. No. So we'll move on. Well, let's move on. OK, everybody, you got that. Boris Johnson has gone. That might well have been predictable yes. uh, from the events on Friday. Um, the interesting question is, and we are not political pundits, but what happens now? Quite. Because um, I think we might expect... This, uh, this is not definitive, but I can't help myself doing a bit of punditry here. We might expect um, this to lead in due course to some kind of uh, leadership bid. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. I think that's what let's, might happen. Let's get back to the frogs. But let's get back to the frogs. OK. Anyway, what we do know for a fact and not speculation is that Boris has gone. Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, you're very welcome. I'd like to bring you news like that as often as I can. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> we just stop there. OK. Now... Let me get back to my story here. Uh, there's a, um, a frog name is, named Smeagol. In fact, he's, he's, proper, he's got a proper Latin name now that builds that in. Ansonia Smeagol. And he's very vulnerable. Uh, the International Union for the Conservation of Na- Nature, it's IUCN, they have a thing called the Red List. You've probably heard of Red Lists. And he's gone on there. Now, let me describe him to you. Mm. He's a semi-aquatic creature like Gollum. Yes. He's got great big eyes, like Gollum. He occurs up in the mountains, a bit like Gollum, and he has long, thin limbs. And his digits are also extended, a bit like Gollum. And uh, he's, uh, he's got all these uh, characteristics. And uh, he's a stream toad who lives in a uh, Malaysian mountain. He uh, lives only in upland streams on the top of a mountain, Um, where it's threatened by the expansion of tourist resorts. And sadly, uh, for Anasonia Smigo, um, unless something's done to protect his habitat uh, and the water quality of the streams, uh, he may be lost forever. In fact, apparently he's a very, very specialised toad. Um, He's only been found so far on the top of one mountain, which makes 
these creatures very unique and very special, but also, of course, very vulnerable to threats. Um, and the rest of this story is that there are uh, several other uh, creatures um, which uh, actually, in terms of toads, have... Um, been on the brink of extinction but we're seeing more of them so there's a thing called a Karchi Andes toad which was seen in Ecuador uh, and uh, in in September um, sorry what am I what am I talking about it includes the the Karchi the Karchi Andes toad has been seen in Ecuador um, and uh, very various other uh, creatures bats unfortunately um, on, are on the red list, on this IUCN red list. It includes a Mauritian flying fox. Now, madly, this bat is only found on, on the Indian Ocean islands of Mauritius and Réunion. But, that's not the mad thing, madly, the government has had a culling programme towards them. So these creatures are now uh, creeping uh, uh, towards uh, extinction. Um, another creature on the red list is a nocturnal animal, um, and uh, it's called the Jamaican hutia. And it looks like, I mean, the picture I've got is kind of mouse-like, but I don't know how big it is. No, it sort of um, looks like a cross between a mouse and a guinea pig. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and again... Main thing here, habitat loss, degradation of the habitat uh, seems to be, be behind its uh, decline. Cats, dogs, uh, mongoose have been uh, getting onto the uh, island uh, of um, Madagascar and uh, hunting them. And uh, finally, and I'll stop with all this doom and gloom in a moment, there's a, there's a beautiful butterfly, uh, a green, yellow, brown butterfly, uh, it's the world's largest butterfly. It's called the Queen Alexandra Birdwing, and it is also on the uh, red list. And its loss of habitat is due to cocoa, rubber, and oil palm plantations, uh, which, of course, uh, as they're being farmed, mm. uh, it, it, it threatens, uh, threatens their habitat. I, d I should just say... Um, that there aren't always simple solutions to these problems because people have to live too, we know that. Uh, sometimes uh, people who, uh, whose only source of income is from uh, some kind of farming uh, are caught up in, in, in all of this. So the problem is a big problem. That doesn't mean that governments and international effort can't solve it. No. Um, I, there's, you say that. I mean, I suppose there is still farming involved in this, but there's the, the one about the trees. So there's this agarwood tree which is on the brink of extinction which is used only for um, perfume and it seems crazy that you would bring a species of tree to extinction just for the sake of perfume yeah to me yeah that seems quite a simple one to solve yeah but of course it may be livelihood for families who wouldn't have it, you know, in another way. Mm. So all, all, all I'm saying is, oh, well, uh, I'm, I'm not saying let's get on and just carry on deforesting no, the forest. Sure. Uh, what, 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 what I'm saying is um, that uh, people, uh, it's a very complicated problem. Yeah, we need to sure make sure is. that people can eat and, and, uh, and live. And smell nice. And smell nice. Anyway, and you're listening to Love and Science uh, on 93.2 FM. And... 
As I said to you before, we are looking at science in the news and science uh, behind the news. And I'm joined, of course, by Andrew Glester. And we're going to one of his favourite places now, which is to talk about Mars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, this story is that um, there is a, a robot who's uh, set... We, I think we've mentioned this before. Uh, a robot set to retrieve Mars rocks. The UK engineers are going to design a robot uh, that's job will be to bring home some Mars rocks so that we can uh, get a proper study of whether or not they show signs of life. Yeah. I mean, this is just awesome, right? You're talking about robots on Mars, and it sometimes it feels like it's a slight stretch, even though it's definitely a thing. We've got robots on Mars. Yeah. We've got several of them. Going around uh, all the time. Doing their thing. Imagine being a Mars. You've managed to hide so far, you know. Yeah. And you just go out one day, you know, whatever Martians do, they go for walks or whatever, and one of these things comes by. Yeah. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. I d- they, so this, this, what this robot's going to do is... Actually, let's start a little bit before that. So NASA and ESA have signed a letter of intent. So everybody knows NASA. We just mentioned ESA, European Space Agency. Sure. Yeah. They have uh, to commit themselves to bring back pieces of Martian rock and soil to Earth before the end of the next decade. So before Mm. the end of 2029, they've said they're going to bring rock and soil back from Mars to Earth to study it for signs of life. Now, the plan is... For NASA to send a rover to Mars in 2020, which will search for interesting materials, drilling, scooping the surface out, and putting those materials in canisters, which are then left on the surface of Mars. This new rover, which is being designed by Airbus in Stevenage here in the UK, or at least uh, specced out by them in the, in the first phases, um, is what it's going to do is land on Mars on a rocket, obviously. Mm. That's how it gets there. Yeah. It gets off the rocket. Not, not a big sling. No. no. But this is an autonomous robot, remember. This is not being controlled, right. so it's an autonomous robot, I think. So it's making decisions for itself. Yeah, and what it will be able to do is look around the Martian surface for these canisters, recognise the canisters on the Martian surface, trundle over to them, pick them up, put them in its back, go to the next one. And it's not going to do anything in terms of the science when it's out there. It's literally just picking these things up. But that ability for this robot to trundle around the, the Martian surface looking for these canisters is just brilliant when you think about it. And it, it puts them in its... It essentially puts them in its backpack, I imagine. I'm, I'm dreaming of what the <laughs> robot looks like. It's not been designed yet. But then it, the, the other... The end of its uh, life on Mars is going to be... It's going to put these canisters back on a rocket to launch up into space, which is which is then joined with the European Space Agency orbit around Mars before heading back to Earth. Ah, right. So the robot's not coming back itself. It's not, because no. do you know what it's going to do? No. It's going to step back or roll back from the rocket and actually film the rocket launching from the surface of Mars ah. and then send that video back to us. So we're going to be able to watch a rocket launching from Mars, filmed by this robot. I love the idea of this autonomous robot because, you know, we might have so it lands, you know, and I can just imagine we're hearing nothing from it for ages. And then we send another robot to find out what's happened. And it's in a hammock, you know, (laughs) drinking oil or whatever, whatever robots do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
and and waiting for a rocket launch. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing in it, but so, I had a great yes, time. Yes, no, I couldn't be bothered, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So no, this is very exciting, oh, and and, awesome. the, and the whole. So can you just speculate with us for a moment okay. uh, on what on what the uh, what the whole point? I mean, why is this actually important? So we've had we've had moon um, Mars rocks before. In fact, we've had um, Mars rocks land quite frequently on Earth because. Mm. When there are big collisions, when when asteroids bash into Mars, it knocks chunks of Mars into space, mm. and some of those rocks, every now and again, have found their way on our, onto our planet, yes. on, onto Earth. We know this. So, why is it so important that we should um, get Mars rocks and invest money in doing that? What you mean, apart from a really cool robot? <laughs> yes, I'm with you. I think this is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. But, but well, I mean, what's the what's the rest of the science? It's not just to show that we can do it. It's no, got, it's no, got for a, sure. a, a it's, more purpose it, than that. It, obviously, those rocks that land, come from Mars and come back to Earth, have travelled through space to get here for some time, and therefore have been affected by their time in space. They've also landed on Earth, so that process of leaving Mars going through space and landing on Earth can contaminate them in a way. So if you did find signs of life on those rocks, then it would be very difficult to say that it was definitively from Mars. Whereas if you can pick them up, uh, and the, the rover, the robot's going to have to be really heavily sanitised, isn't it? Because otherwise it could contaminate the rocks. But anyway, that's what, what part of the design I'm sure that they're thinking of. But if you can pick but, up those rocks specifically from Mars, put them in a sealed container, and then bring those containers back to Earth, open them up in lab conditions, then you can see definitively whether those rocks actually have on their soil, has signs of life or indeed life in them. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Because um, if someone were to do that on planet Earth, we know that there'd be abundant. I mean, you look at a piece of coal. Yes. And you can see um, sometimes creatures, but mostly um, ferns and mm. things like that, which in fact have gone to made, make, make up the coal. Some of these ancient forests that have been pressurised until they essentially turn into a big lump of carbon. But you can definitely see evidence of, mm. of, of life there. Fossils, hmm. and we're not expecting to see fossils, are we? No, on Mars? I don't think so. Uh, I, no, we're not. But I don't think there's there's any sign that there would be fossils in that that early, or fossils of any significant size in that hmm. in that the, in those rocks. Um, who knows what there is? Hmm. We haven't seen it, so we no. don't know. No. And it. it if we did find it, though, you know, if we did bring back those soil samples and those rocks, and we did find signs of life in them then um that would tell us so much wouldn't it oh yeah i mean that we have yeah. a neighbor that we've thought was dead effectively for so long that we thought there's never had life in it for so long we yeah. thought that yeah and it is only by going to the nearest planet we actually have to go there and bring part of it back before we find life on it then that to me, answers the Drake equation quite quite nicely, which is to say, there's life on the nearest planet, but it's taken us this long to find it. Yeah, and the Drake, uh, Drake equation, we sh should just say, was was drawn up by a uh, professor Drake back in the sixties, who who, who uh, figured out all the possible um, 
what should we call conditions for for life mm. and and uh, worked out some of the probabilities and multiplied them all together yes and figured out that there must be billions of planets yes i've realized i've misspoken and i should have said the fermi paradox a Fermi paradox, which right, is okay. the idea that there's so much life out there. Surely, but why haven't we heard from yeah. them yet? Yeah, and the answer okay. might just be because it's really hard to find life, even on the closest planet to us, if it's there. Yeah, yeah, good point. And I'll start wittering about the Drake equation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So another astronomy uh, story, which is all about exomoons. Um, uh, Mary Halton, uh, again of the BBC, just uh, wrote this. You can find this on uh, the BBC uh, uh, website um, if you look at uh, look for science news. And um, we've been busy looking for exoplanets uh, which orbit distant stars. So an exoplanet is simply a planet which goes around a star that is not in our solar system we've only got one star in our solar system that's our sun uh, but way uh, um, away uh, there are many stars which are all suns and going around them are planets and we've discovered 3700 planets going around other stars which in itself is exciting and amazing but where you get planets you get moons so what's what's so interesting about moons we because our moon's a bit dead yeah i mean it appears to be it's awesome and amazing but in terms of activity not much is happening no completely but our moon seems quite um odd compared to other moons in in our solar system in that it is considerably larger than you would expect if you studied all the other moons of all the other planets in our solar system Ours seems alarmingly big, and that's probably caught because of the way that it's been created, which is by another planetary body in the early years of the Earth, early, you know, early part of the formation of the solar system. Two planetary bodies collided, and all the debris, well, not all the debris, but a lot of the debris came off, formed rings which eventually came together into what we know as our moon today. But other moons will have been formed not in that way, but by um, parts of the uh, debris in a planetary disk, as a protoplanetary disk, as planets are being formed, then little moons will form in, as part of that as well. And obviously there are different ways of, be- of moons being formed. But if you think of our moon, then you could be tempted to think, well, moons aren't full of life. But then if you look at the moons of Saturn or you look at the moons of Jupiter, then there are tens of moons on those yeah. orbiting those planets. Yeah, yeah. Some of them Io, for example, is covered in volcanoes. Yeah. And if we had a moon that was covered in volcanoes orbiting our planet that we could see in the night sky, then you might be tempted to think, well, moons are a good idea yeah. for life. Yeah, yeah. But actually what we've found is there's a team um from Columbia University in New York who've been looking at uh, the there's this thing called the Goldilocks zone, right? Ah, yes. Which is not too close to the sun or the star. Nothing to do with bears. Uh, quite a lot to do with bears. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, so it's not too close to the sun, so it's not yeah, too hot, not yeah. too far away, so it's not too close, uh, yeah. not too cold. It's yeah. just in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. And Earth is in the Goldilocks zone in our solar system. Yeah. So is Mars. Yeah. So is Venus. Yeah. Mars and except, Venus. Except Venus is not a good place to go. No, because of the uh, runaway greenhouse effect on Venus yeah. and because of Mars's 
this is going off too far, isn't it? But basically, yes. because Mars is too small and it has uh, its um, what's it called magnetosphere that yes. is around it has it's, gone. It's, it's gone. So gone. the atmosphere has drifted away. Yes. Yeah. So the sun has blasted away the atmosphere on yeah. Mars, but um, that's a Goldilocks zone around a star. You can ha- also have a Goldilocks zone around a planet. Yeah. It'll be close enough to a planet for uh, warmth from that planet to, yeah. to cause you to give you warmth, reflected warmth, warmth from friction. Yeah, as we talked about last week. That's right. So as a planet expands and contracts as it goes around, uh, uh, sorry, a, a moon might might contract and expand as it goes around. Yes. Yes, uh, a planet. Absolutely, which makes friction, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there are, if you think about it, a lot of planets in the Goldilocks zone, and some of those planets, as I said, our planet seems to be bizarre that it's just got one lifeless moon. Some of those planets around other stars could have four, five, six, seven, eight, yeah. nine moons yeah. around them, which are all in the habitable zone. Yeah, yeah. Not only of the, pla- of, the pl- of the planets that they're orbiting, but also the star that that planet is orbiting. So the potential for life on those moons is far greater than the potential for life on the planet, yeah. it's just by sheer number of, yeah. of, of planets. One of the things, obviously, as we've just talked about with Mars, Mars doesn't have this magnetosphere protecting it from the solar rays coming off the power sun. Those moons wouldn't have a significant enough, unless they were bigger than Mars, I suppose they could be, around a giant planet. But a giant planet could have a huge magnetosphere which would protect itself and all its moons from whatever is coming, the solar winds coming from that star. So you could imagine this, this almost like, have a, you would have this huge planet in your sky and it would be the thing that gave you life, effectively the same the way that we have our sun giving us life. You would have the sun and this planet in your, in your night and day sky and that planet would be enabling you to live because of its huge magnetosphere yeah. protecting you and, and all the other moons around you. Yeah, so well, it would be an incredibly strange environment to us, wouldn't yeah. it, to, to, to live on a moon? Yeah. Um, wow, amazing. Well, we wish <laughs> we wish them luck. Yeah. And uh, so, so essentially the story is that um, uh, there's... Um, this particular project is looking far more at finding moons... Yes, uh, uh, and 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 uh, the possibility of uh, uh, moons with uh, life-supporting uh, properties. All right. Well, look, um, we'll we'll go to some more music in just a second. Um, just to let you know, breaking news is that the Foreign Secretary uh, Boris Johnson has uh, resigned. Um, so you're listening to uh, Love and Science with uh, me, Malcolm Love and Andrew Glester and we've been looking at some of the stories in Science News. There are hundreds of stories every week of course in the Science News and we uh, pick out some that uh, uh, well, we're particularly interested in. And um, uh, there's a, a story about ben- Bananas, which I, I, I know you'll be pleased because uh, uh, I, I know you've got a big thing about bananas, Andrew. Is that, I, is I don't true? have a big thing about Do bananas. Do you not? No, no. no. You're thinking of Herbie, I think. Ah, Herbie, that's yeah. right. Well, look, um, you know the song, uh, we, uh, Yes, We Have No Bananas. Do, no, I don't know that song. Do you not? No. Ah, yes, Should I? We Have No Bananas. Is it good? 
It's a it's a great song, very old uh, old musical song, okay. and uh, it's 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 probably based on uh, uh, a, a massive banana shortage, which happened in the 1950s. This is real. Is it's that a, a shortage of massive bananas? No, no. It's a massive shortage. Oh, okay. Of a fruit. Okay, got uh, And uh, the, uh, whatever banana is, I mean, people write in and tell me it's not a fruit, of course, <laughs> which I know it isn't. Um, this, this, this happened in the 1950s. Uh, uh, um, there's a, a banana known as the, uh, I think we say this is the Gros Michel, uh, known as Big Mike, and uh, that's what we mostly ate. But um, there was a fungus uh, which killed it, and um, so people started singing. Oh, this song was written. Yes, we have no bananas. Anyway, uh, uh, Gr- Gros Michel or Gros Michel uh, was replaced by a banana called the Gavin the Cavendish banana. Named after William Cavendish, who is the sixth Duke of Devonshire, lived in Chatsworth House in Derbyshire. And uh, bananas have been grown there at Chatsworth since 1830, uh, when the head gardener, Joseph Paxton, propagated a specimen which he imported from Mauritius. Now, what's happening is that uh, bananas are under serious threat from uh, a disease called the Panama disease. And um, uh, you, what we need are bananas that are resistant to Panama disease, uh, which are tasty enough to eat. And, um, well, they're not going to succumb to Panama disease. Now, there's a Madagascan banana, which has evolved uh, in isolation, because Madagascar is a very isolated place. Uh, it's cut off from the mainland. Uh, this banana has evolved on, on, on Madagascar. And according to Richard Allen, who's a senior uh, conservation assessor at the uh, Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, says that the species, this species, which is known as Enceti perieri, perieri, could have inbuilt tolerance to drought and or disease. It doesn't have Panama disease in it, he says, and so perhaps its genetic traits uh, are against the disease. And uh, we won't know until we can do tests on it, but we can't do tests on it because, sadly and tragically, there's only a handful of these plants left. In fact, literally, there are five mature trees left in the wild. So you can't, we can't test it until we've saved it? But we need the tests. Well, presumably they could do some limited tests, but it's very dangerous to do tests when you've only got a small proportion. Mm. But those are on the red list as well. These plants, we're back to what Uh, we were talking about earlier in the the show. I I was just looking at that, the Cavendish bananas, as you say, named after William Cavendish, the sixth Duke of Devonshire. Yes, yes. His claim to fame is that he lived in Chatsworth House. Yeah, and the bananas were named after him, whereas the person who actually should the bananas should be named after is the head gardener Joseph Paxton, exactly who propagated a specimen imported from Mauritius, and, and it seems like what it's suggesting is that nearly every banana that's now eaten is <laughs> yes. directly descended from that one plant that Joseph Paxton, yes, the head gardener propagated. Yes, uh, well, apparently, think about bananas; are they clones? Yeah. That's 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 how they propagate. They're they're all clones of each other. So yeah, you're right. They they have come from. That. So he that should be called the Paxton. It should uh, be called banana. the Paxton. Banana, yes, yeah. but there you go. There was a time when patronage counted for everything. Quite didn't it? 
So there we go. How things have changed. How? <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, um, uh, I know I told you that we were going to go for a, uh, another story uh, about spiders, which we're going to hopefully come to in just a second. But I did want to uh, pick up on this story about ties because oh, yeah. it amuses me so much. Um, and it turns out that um, wearing a tie may restrict blood, fro- blood flow to the brain. Oh, yeah. So there you are. So this won't affect either of us. No. I mean, I'm, I'm in my usual cat suit in the studio. And Andrew is wearing his evening dress. Neither of us are wearing ties. No. No. And... Um, uh, it, ter- it turns out that uh, if you if you wear a necktie, according to a study published in the Journal of uh, Neuroradiology, uh, just at the end of June, so just uh, the story's taken its while while to spread. Uh, researchers found evidence suggesting that wearing popular men's accessory, uh, the, the popular men's accessory, the tie, may hamper your creative abilities because it restricts blood throw, f- flow to the brain. Uh, study researcher Robin Ludecker uh, from the University Hospital in uh, Schleswig-Holstein in Germany uh, and his colleagues recruited 30 men for the study, half of whom were asked to wear ties and they found that it cut circulation to their brains by 7.5%. Right. Which is all right. Obviously, people aren't dropping like flies when they put ties on no. in the morning no. but it turns out that a drop of 7.5% is big enough it's significant enough to make a fatal difference to people who've got high blood pressure oh okay so that's the first thing yeah so we can say for people who have high blood pressure you really do need to be very careful about wearing too tight a tie mm. uh, that's the first thing uh, and um, that uh, in any case you can measure uh, real restrictions uh, to blood flow, which may affect your ability to think properly. So the moral How of weird. the story is, if a man in a smart suit with his tie done up really tight says to you, do your tie up, yeah. then even if he's the Prime Minister and you're yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, you should ignore him because exactly. he's probably not thinking right. He's, he's threatening your health and safety. Here's, here's another not-tie-wearing man. We're glad to call our friend John. Got a lovely T-shirt on. John Ford with an excellent T-shirt on. You like it, do you? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Ford, 1903. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not related. I wish I was. Yeah. Because there might be a bit of inheritance there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, uh, yeah, there you go. Do you ever wear a tie, John? Do I ever wear a tie? Yeah. Uh, uh, gee, you know, weddings, funerals, that kind of thing. But no, not generally, no. It's no. all dressed down these days, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it tends to be. Yeah, we've just done, a, I, I think you were just coming in, we've just done yeah. an article which says that wearing a tie restricts blood th- blood flow to the brain. Yeah. Uh, and Is that why all M? MPs wear them. <laughs> just, just saying. Just it's, saying. It's possibly linked, isn't it? 
Yeah. Or rather, why they make stupid decisions constantly. Because the ties are done. In yeah. fact, Prince Charles has always got his... He's got a tiny little knock. He's like, his shirt's too small for him. <laughs> Just saying. Well, that would only make sense if politicians were consistently making stupid decisions. Well, uh, yes. Trump's coming this week, isn't he? <laughs> I think we should have a show where we all wear t- ties in the interests of science and experimentation yes. and see whether our show is even more stupid than usual. But we, <laughs> well, hang on, Gareth, Gareth, Gareth Southgate's been wearing a tie. Oh. And, you know, he's done the right thing. I don't so think his blood flow is It works for him, doesn't yeah, it? It yeah. works for him. <laughs> anyway, don't forget to stay uh, tuned to... Uh, BCFM after the news because John's going to be getting Bristol home. Uh, before all that happens, though, I bet you've got a few things we've left out of the show. Well, we? we have. Yeah, this is where science meets politics. Talking of Trump, um, the the American Constitution was written in a, uh, 1787, um, and the Second Amendment, which they they live by, was uh, published in 1791, and this was the right to bear arms. Hmm. Well, a few years after that, in 1856, the crank-operated machine gun was patented by Charles. Emerson Barnes of uh, the United States, followed in 1862 by Theodore R. Timby, who patented the revolving gun turret. But of course, um, the Second Amendment was written when they all had muskets, wasn't it? And, um, you know, (laughs) they went on to invent all this great scientific weaponry, which, uh, no wonder they have a gun problem in the States. Mm. I I absolutely love the... um, the Family Guy take on the right to bear arms. They uh-huh. kind of, did a cut back, you know, so all the, the, the founding fathers were standing around yes. saying, no, no, I don't think this could possibly be misunderstood. Yes. Uh, everybody can have bear arms, meaning um, <laughs> the, arms, the arms of a bear. Yes. <laughs> I don't think this will ever be misunderstood. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into weaponry, especially with the modern stuff these days. But, uh, you know, bearing in mind that uh, the gun problem problem you know is more so in, in the states isn't it these days um, it is and, and you know this constitution was written in 1791 or the second amendment anyway yeah are you suggesting um, it could be updated well it wouldn't be such a bad idea would it no i mean it seems why not you know with, with i mean it, i mean this is where science helps isn't it you know science has progressed us in life yet some of these old laws go back centuries in, in this case the the second amendment yeah. you with the ability of science to create all this weaponry and other stuff as well, surely the the law should be changed to respect that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I went I preaching went. to the converted here. Indeed, I would never argue with that. That sounds uh, very sensible to me. Anyway, look, it's been great having your company this afternoon. Don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of Love and Science. Stay tuned to BCFM because the news is up next, and then it's John Ford getting uh, Bristol home. Whoa. We hope you have a very Good evening from Andrew Mead. Bye-bye.